you, Lucy. Good evening, everyone. Uh, well, it's really good to be with you tonight. Thank you so much for the invitation to come along and to share with you. My name's uh, Matthew Campbell. We're going to look and unpack that little section of Scripture together. Uh, but let me pray and ask for God's help. God, as we come before you tonight, we uh, are so aware, uh, in light of the songs that we've been singing and our reflections in our own hearts about the God that you are, Father, we're so aware that you're a holy God, that you're a supreme God, that you reign over everything in our universe. And God, we come before you this evening humbled, acknowledging that we are sinful, that we are by nature rebellious, uh, that even perhaps this week, Lord, even as Christians, we've done things, we've thought things, we've said things uh, which fall so desperately short of your perfect standard of holiness and for how we were created to live. And so, God, we pray uh, that you would give us humble hearts as we come before you, thankful for our mediator, Jesus Christ, who bridges the gap between our sinfulness and your holiness. And, God, I pray that you would just help us now as we look at this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Father, help us to see a little picture of who you are more clearly, and may your spirit move mightily in each of our hearts as your spirit moves and stirs us up and transforms us, we pray, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Well, I'm sure many of you have uh, seen the really popular illustration by a guy called Francis Chan. You've probably seen it on YouTube. It's really, really famous. Basically, he gets a massively long piece of rope, like 20 meters, 30 meter long piece of rope. And at one end of that massively long piece of rope, he has attached about two to three inches of little red tape. And he stands before his congregation and he says, I want you to imagine that this rope, this massively long piece of rope is a timeline of your existence. Imagine this rope as a timeline of your existence. In reality, the rope should go on forever because we actually exist forever. But just imagine it goes on forever and it's a timeline of your existence. And then he points to the little red part. The two to three inches of red tape at the end of this massively long piece of rope. And he says, if this was a timeline of your existence, this little red part would represent your time on earth. Shocking, isn't it? You've got these few short years here on earth, and then comes all of eternity somewhere else. And what he says is this, it's absolutely crazy when you think about it like that, because here's the reality, as you look into our world, perhaps even as you look into your own heart, we are a people who are obsessed with those two to three inches of red tape, aren't we? We are a people who are obsessed with the here and now. We are a people who are obsessed with this short fraction of your existence, the fraction on earth. Francis Chan says it's crazy, isn't it? Because the reality is the Bible teaches that what we do in this little red part determines how we're going to exist for the millions and millions and millions of years after. And as you look around you, and even if you look into your own heart, you see people who are obsessed with earning money, being popular, working really, really hard for the first three quarters of their life just so they can enjoy the retirement in the final quarter. Bunkers, isn't it? And is urgent appeal to his congregation and to you and I by extension is this, do not be people who are fixated on that short little red part at the end of your timeline. Do not be a people who are fixated on the here and now. Why? Because life is brief. Life is brief. And I wonder if you ever had any moments, I'm sure you have, in your own experience where you've felt that reality become a little bit more poignant that life is brief. You've had some reminders this week, haven't you? With Henry and Dan. 
And perhaps you've had some reminders in your own life, perhaps sickness, sickness to a family member, death of a family member or a loved one, maybe even just something simple like driving down in your car and someone pulling out at you at 60 miles an hour and they're literally being millimeters, centimeters, meters between you being in a car crash and not being in a car crash. Life is brief. And as you've read through the book of Ecclesiastes this year, I'm sure you've picked up, you've gathered that that is one of the major themes that the teacher, who I think is King Solomon, wants to convey to you, doesn't he? In fact, from his very opening thesis statement, right in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, what did he say? Life is vanity, meaningless. The word's hevel, Hebrew word hevel. It's hard to perfectly pin down one English word, which is the correct translation to hevel, because it's got quite a wide semantic range. But we always have to define Hevel by the context to which it sits. And in this instance, in the closing section of Ecclesiastes, again, King Solomon tells us, life is Hevel. And as he closes the book of Ecclesiastes by telling us life is Hevel, a quick look at the context will show us what exactly he means when he says in this closing section that life is Hevel. And here's what he means. Life is brief. It's here and then it's gone. Talk to anyone on their deathbed. Talk to anyone as they're staring down the barrel of a gun. Talk to anyone who's in the severe stages of sickness. They'll all sing the same song of Solomon, and it's this, life is brief. It's brief. We get that impression from Solomon. That's what he's talking about. If you glance your eyes down at chapter 12, what does he talk about in chapter 12? The justification for what he speaks on here in chapter 11. Well, he talks about the onset of old age, doesn't he? Glance down at your Bibles at chapter 12. Look at verse 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. What's he talking about there? He's talking about your eyesight. He's just pleaded with you to remember your creator in the days of your youth. And he says, do it before the sun and moon dim. In other words, before your eyes get purr. Happens, doesn't it? When you get old, your eyesight gets purr. You might not know that yet, but ask your parents, grandparents, they'll tell you. Verse 3. In the day that the keepers of the house tremble. What's he referring to there? Your legs. Once you get a little bit older. Maybe into your 50s, 60s, 70s, those legs aren't quite as nimble as they used to be. Look what else he says, verse 3. And the grinders cease because they are few. What's he talking about there? Your grinders, your teeth. Your teeth, as you get older, become fewer, less effective. He goes on, he talks about your hearing, all these little factors, all these symptoms that are characteristic of people as they get older. What's Solomon talking about? The onset of old age, the justification for what he's talking about here in chapter 11. And so when he says life is hevel, what's he saying? He's saying life is brief. It's here, and then it's gone. And so the question that he wants to answer now in chapter 11, verses 1, really through the end of the chapter, I think, the question he wants to answer is this. Okay, since life is hevel, since life is brief, how then should I live? I've got this short fraction of an existence here on earth. It's here, then it's gone. How then should I live in light of life's brevity? And I think in chapter 11, Solomon gives us three answers to that question. The first of which he answers in verses 1 to 6, what we're going to look at this evening. And here's what he tells us. Here's the first answer to the question in verses 1 to 6. If you want to know the other answers, read Ecclesiastes 11 later on. But here's the first answer in verse 1 to 6 that we're going to look at tonight. In light of the fact that your life is brief, in light of the fact that your life is a vapor, it's here, then it's gone, live fearlessly. Live with a fearless, intentional aspect to your life. Be fearlessly intentional. 
to be fearlessly intentional. Now, I've got to be honest, I kind of have a pet peeve against the word intentional, okay? Because it's kind of a Christian buzzword, isn't it? It seems to be the solution to everything. I'm struggling in my Christian life, well, be intentional. Be in- we just kind of throw it out there. But I think Solomon quite helpfully here is saying, no, be fearlessly intentional in light of the fact that life is brief. Be fearlessly intentional. Look at what he says, verse one on the screen. I'm reading from the ESV. He says, cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. Uh, As you've probably discovered reading through the book of Ecclesiastes this year, uh, Solomon rarely makes it easy for you and I as 21st century Christians living in Northern Ireland to quite catch on immediately to what he's talking about, isn't he? Cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. Probably none of us, if we're honest, read that and think, I know exactly what's going on here. But Solomon's speaking in a metaphor here. And it's a metaphor which is referring to a particular business venture which was extremely popular in Solomon's day, and it was the sea trade. People would commonly go out and they would sell their investments to people who would trade them on the sea and they would go out and they would come back. It's a very common practice in Solomon's day. And what you need to know about the sea trade to which Solomon's referring to here is two things. One, it's very, very profitable. But two, it's very, very risky. The sea trade is very profitable, but it's also very, very risky. And it was hard work. In fact, many sailors would go out in the sea trade and they were always under constant threat. Pirates, stormy weather, they would often not return. But if only one in three ships returned to shore, that was a lucrative business which was well worth your investment. And so the question is, you're a businessman or as you're someone who's trying to survive in life in Solomon's day, you probably look at this opportunity and you might have two different types of people. People who think, let's go for it. And people who are thinking, no, 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 no. The kind of cautious Carl, steady Eddie types who said, let's just stay away from that. But what does Solomon say? He says, cast your bread upon the waters. In other words, be fearless. Be intentional. Put your pedal to the metal and go. What he's really trying to say as you translate it into spiritual means is this. In life, work hard. Work hard. Be intentional. Be bold. Take risks. This was arduous work, difficult work, tough work, but if it worked, it paid off. And what Solomon wants to say to you in your spiritual life is this, be bold, be bullish. Life is brief, take risks. wonder are you here and you're a bit of a steady Eddie Christian, a bit of a cautious Carol. Well, Solomon wants to warn you that you're existing, but you're not actually living. Because actually in true Christianity, authentic Christianity, which is given to us in the scriptures, there's no room for cautious Carls or steady Eddies. The position for lukewarm is already taken. He says, you want to truly live the Christian life, the authentic Christian life? You need to be fearlessly intentional. It's hard work and it's risky. It's hard work. And it's risky. Solomon's trying to warn us against the default position to which all of us, if we're totally honest, are extremely susceptible, and it's the position of comfort. It's a position of comfort. I'm not willing to share the gospel. That might risk my reputation. I'm not willing to generously give of my money and my tithes and my offerings. What if I don't have enough money for the things that I want to buy? I can't really go into my school and be fearless for Jesus Christ. What will other people think of me? I can't really give my life to Christ. What would my family say? I can't really be sold out and committed to the local church. I have too many other things going on. I've got exams. I've got pressures from school. I've got all these things in my life. 
Solomon says, if that's you, prone to comfort, prone to not taking risks, being bland, you've got a budget version of Christianity. It's not the real thing. Not the real thing. I don't know if anyone's come across the website AliExpress. Anyone come across AliExpress? Yeah, I see a few. Yeah. That was the most passionate amen I got from some people already. Uh, AliExpress, I haven't actually been on AliExpress in a few years, but I used to love AliExpress because you could get these total knockoff Nike trainers, okay? They looked the part, they looked the real deal, but they were like a fiver. It was brilliant. And uh, I used to be all excited about getting, I'd like buy like five pairs of these Nike trainers, and they looked unbelievable when they arrived. But the truth is, after about a month, the kind of Nike tick sort of fell off, and uh, the sole started to wear and kind of come off as well. And although it looked like the real deal, the truth was it was a budget version and it was useless. King Solomon says, are you a steady, eddy Christian prone to comfort? It's a budget version of Christianity. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. And you know, not, I don't think Solomon's even just referring to spiritual things. I think he's talking about life generally. In your schoolwork, in your exams, in your job, work hard. Put the time and the effort in. Be bullish. Take risks. Why? So that you can flourish? Kind of. So that you can live the life that everyone would dream of? No. Look at the next verse. Why should we live and be fearlessly intentional? Look at verse 2. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Unfortunately, if you've got an NIV here, it interprets this wrongly, I think. It's an interpretation, not a translation. It says, divide your investments. But that's not what Solomon's referring to here. The literal word is to give. He's not talking about splitting your wealth. He's talking about giving. In other words, it's a plea to be generous. In other words, he's saying, be fearlessly intentional and work hard and take risks. And yes, you can flourish in this life, but what is the purpose? So that you can be fearlessly and radically generous. And notice what he says, give a portion to seven or even to eight. What's he talking about? You might be familiar with a particular type of literature in the Bible known as apocalyptic literature, uh, where numbers are used symbolically. And that's what King Solomon is doing here. The number seven in apocalyptic literature is used to symbolize completeness. Completeness. And so when King Solomon says, give to seven, what he's saying is give completely. Give perfectly. It's another way of saying give unbelievably generous. But notice that he doesn't stop at seven. He says, give a portion to seven or even to eight. See what he's saying? Give perfectly, give completely, and then give some more. Everybody used to play sport. I used to hate, I don't know why this annoyed me, but it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine. When you're in the changing room and they're doing that kind of big talk where they're trying to pump you up and maybe the captain's talking rubbish and trying to really inspire you. And then he would say something like, give 110%, right? That used to always bug me. Maybe I'm a bit too rigid, but I'm kind of going 100% is 100%. You can't get any more than 100%. But you know what someone means when they say give 110%. What they're saying is give 100%, give everything, and then give some more. It's exactly what Solomon's saying here. He's saying, give generously, give radically, give completely, and then give some more. Ralph Kaiser, who's a Hebrew scholar, this is how he comments in that verse. He says, what Solomon is saying is this, give liberally and as generously as you can, and then some. See what he's saying? Be bullish, fearless, intentional, take risks in this life, not for your own flourishing, but so that you can be a radical giver generous. 
And perhaps you're saying, well, why should I do that? What motivation does he offer for me? Well, look what he says. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on this earth. Why spend all this money, all this time, all this energy trying to flourish yourself in a moment something can happen and all your hard work has gone to waste? You can make loads of money, but you're building on a faulty foundation, aren't you? It doesn't take much to happen. Sickness, a recession, it's happened before. Theft, natural disasters. And all that stuff which you've invested all your time, money, and energy into is just like that, gone. I was reading a statistic recently about the Forbes top rich list for 2007 in the music artist category. Do you know who was top? Michael Jackson, okay? In 2017, Michael Jackson made more money than any other music artist. He made over $75 million. Isn't that crazy? But what's the clear problem staring you in the face? Michael Jackson's dead, isn't he? And so what use is the money? It's of zero use. That's kind of what Solomon is saying. You can flourish and get rich in this life and invest everything in yourself, but ultimately death makes a mockery of us all, and everything that this world offered can make a mockery of us all, and ultimately it's going to be meaningless. There's only one thing that counts in the light of the fact that we've got a short period of life. And so he says, don't waste it. Don't waste it. But you know, as human beings, we love excuses, don't we? In fact, even as you're listening to this passage right now, perhaps even in your own heart, you're starting to think of some of his excuses as to why this shouldn't apply to me. Why I don't have to step outside of my comfort zone and be fearless and intentional in my Christian walk. It's almost going to give you three of the most common excuses that we as a human race tend to make. Here's the first one. That's the excuse of inevitability. Excuse of inevitability. Look at verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, then empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Again, a bit of a random statement from Solomon. Here's kind of where he turns into Captain Obvious. He says this, if a tree falls north or if a tree falls south, at the end of the day, the tree still falls, doesn't it? If the clouds fill rain, they're going to empty, and guess what? It's going to rain. You kind of look at Solomon and say, well, that's pretty obvious. But what's he talking about here? He's trying to expose the people who kind of have this kind of K-sera-sera mindset about life. You know those people? They would say something like, well, God already knows he's going to become a Christian, so why should I even bother sharing the gospel? God's going to do what God's going to do. If a tree falls north, there'll be a tree falls north. It falls, no matter where it falls. So why should I bother? And you use that as an excuse into doing nothing. Or you might say, well, if God already knows the future, why should I bother to pray? God already knows what's going to happen. So I'm just going to do nothing. Or you might say, well, if God knows all the things that I'm going to do in my life, why should I make the decision right now, which is so-called God-glorifying? God's already marked out my days. Sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? Sounds very holy. But Solomon says it's an excuse. It's an excuse. Don't use deep philosophical things that you don't really understand to try and justify you being inactive in your Christian life, to try and justify your comfortable Christianity. He says, no, be fearlessly intentional. Work hard. Take risks. That's authentic Christianity. Don't use inevitability as an excuse. But what's the second excuse Solomon exposes in our heart? It's not just the excuse of inevitability. It's the excuse of uncertainty. Uncertainty. Look what he says, verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. 
What person is he describing now? Well, the person he talks about here is a farmer. A farmer who always looks outside, thinks about the work he could do outside, but he's always looking at the wind. Ah, the rain could come at any moment. I could go outside now and do some work. Ah, but it might rain. I'll leave it till tomorrow. You know this mindset? This is like the person who's always starting their diet on Monday. You know people? I would eat healthy today, but I'm going to start my diet on Monday. And then Monday comes and you think, well, it's Monday, but it's the middle of the month. You can't start a diet in the middle of the month. It makes more sense to start a diet at the beginning of the month. And so you get to the beginning of the month and you think, well, it's September. You can't start a diet in September. That's random. Let's start the diet in January. And so you wait until January. And finally, it's Monday, the first week in January at the start of a new year. And you think, well, it's 2019. That's a prime number. Start the diet in 2020, right? Maybe you've done this in your exams, your revision. We love doing this in revision, don't we? We make the excuse of uncertainty about the future as to a good reason as to why we should not revise and why we should just put it off. We procrastinate. Hands up if you've procrastinated so far this year. Half the room, the other half are lying, okay? Here's what a typical day of revision looked like for me. Here was the plan. The plan was this. I'll get up, wake up at 8 a.m. I'll work from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eight hours, solid revision, no breaks, not needed, okay? And so I'd get up, 9 a.m., alarm would go off. I'd think to myself, well, I'm quite tired. You can't revise when you're tired. You all know that. I need to be fresh when I'm revising. So I hit snooze 15, 16 times. I get up about half 10. I get up, now I'm ready to hit the books hard. Here I go, revision, here I come. I'm about to smack it and hit it in the face. And I get up and I think, well, I'm kind of hungry. <laughs> can't revise when you're hungry. You all know that. I would be far more efficient if I had some breakfast then came back. back. My revision would be a bit less in time, but it would be better quality. And so I go... I get myself a wee cereal, make myself some pancakes in the kitchen. Come back up, it's about 11 a.m., 11.30, but I'm ready to hit the books hard. And I kind of think to myself, well, I haven't showered yet. <laughs> you can't revise when you're smelly, you all know that. It's an absolute disgrace. And so I hop into the shower, I get showered, I get my dress, uh, I get my dress, I get dressed. <laughs> I do all that thing. Some of you girls, you can spend extra long at this point and you think, brilliant. It's 12 o'clock, it's really lunchtime, isn't it? go to lunch, get lunch, come back, sit at my desk, ready to hit the books hard, and I sit and I think to myself, I could revise right now, but do you know what I really need? I need a really good revision timetable, okay? <laughs> so I craft this beautiful revision timetable, it's wonderful, but I look into my pencil case and I think, oh, I've only got blue and black pens. You can't revise and make a beautiful revision timetable with just blue and black pens. You need a variety of different colored pens and highlighters. So I hop in my car, I go to Tesco's, I come back, and I'm ready to go but I'm tired, I've had a busy day. <laughs> I need a nap. But it's 4 p.m., countdown's on, okay? I go, go and watch countdown, there's a nice, that's kind of like Maz revision, isn't it? Countdown, there's numbers around, and there's words, it's kind of like Maz in English in two, and it gets to five o'clock and I've done absolutely nothing. That sound familiar? We laugh, but we can do the exact same thing in our Christian lives, can't we? Oh, I don't know what's going to happen. God's going to do what God's going to do. A bit of, bit of uncertainty, or you know what, I, I, I don't really know. And it cripples us in the inactivity. You might be here and you're thinking, you know what, I'm not going to be sold out for Jesus right now. But once I leave uni, I'm going to be sold out for Jesus. I'm not going to give generously of my money now. Hey, but one day, when I earn X amount of money, I'm going to give so radically. You might even think right now, I'm in the busyness of exam season. I can't have a good, consistent, quiet time, healthy time with God, but once my exams end, oh, my quiet time's going to be brilliant. I could serve Christ right now. I could give my all for him. 
but I'm just going to wait till summer because that's when I switch it on. You might even be thinking, I'm not going to give my life to Christ now. I'm going to wait till I'm really old and then I'll give my life to Christ. Here's the truth, friends. Here's Solomon, the wisest man ever to have walked this earth apart from Jesus Christ himself. He says, you won't. J.C. Ryle says, have you got any inclination to start praying? Do it now. Have you got any inclination towards spiritual things? Do it now. Have you got any inclination towards giving your life or, or giving yourself wholeheartedly to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do it now. If God's working in your heart now. You would be wise to be led by those provokings. Why? Because any excuse you make is just that. It's an excuse. And to this first exclusive inevitability, Solomon rips it apart. The second one of uncertainty, he rips it apart. But here's the third and final one. It's the excuse of incapability. A bit like how incapable I am of changing the slide here. Incapability. Verse 5, look at it with me. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. This is the person who says, I could live fearlessly and radically for Jesus right now, but I'm just not gifted enough. I don't know my Bible enough yet. I could help and volunteer at my SU or lead a small group, but I don't know all the things about the Bible. I don't really, I'm not really down with the book of Leviticus. I could go and try and share the gospel with my classmate, but they might ask me some really difficult questions, and I'm not really equipped to answer them, and so I'm not really going to step out in boldness just yet because I don't really know how it all works. I don't have it all together yet. But here's what Solomon says. You're never going to have it all together. And in every other aspect of your life, there are plenty of things to which you don't have a comprehension of knowledge, but that doesn't hold you back in any other aspect of life. Sure, it doesn't. Here's the example he gives. Very common one. It's birth, childbirth. No one knows the intricacies of exactly how a baby is formed. We know the basics and eggs, fertilized, yada, yada, yada. But the truth is, no one truly knows how it all works. It's magical, supernatural. Even the smartest, most intelligent doctor doesn't know how it all fits together. But that doesn't stop people having children, does it? Ever spoke to an elderly couple? Say, do you ever have kids? Say, no, we just didn't know how it works, so we thought we wouldn't have any. No one does that. You could take any other example you wish. Perhaps you're going on holiday this year. You're going to get on a plane, and you're going to travel two, three, four, five, twelve hours to somewhere else. Do you really understand how that plane works? Like, do you really understand how that plane, with all that weight pulling it down, gets off the ground and stays there? You're kind of sticking your life in the plane at that moment, aren't you? But you don't really understand everything that's going on. Here's what Solomon says. There are many things in this world to which you don't fully understand, but that doesn't cripple you into inactivity in those circumstances. And so when you say the same thing about your Christian faith, here's what it is. It's an excuse that Satan's planting in your head to try and stop you from being fearlessly intentional, being bold, working hard, and taking risks for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so these three excuses, the one of inevitability, one of uncertainty, one of incapability, he exposes in this last verse, verse 6. Look at it with me. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. What's Solomon saying? It's a very comforting truth. Here it is. God is the one who's in charge of results. God is the one who's in charge of results. You don't know in all your activity what things are going to prosper and what things are going to flop, but that doesn't ultimately matter. God is the one who's in charge of results. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. In other words, be busy, be active, be fearless, take risks, be intentional, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Who's in charge of the results? It's God. And so what's your job? What's my job? In the short little period of time we have here on earth, it's this. Be faithful. 
be faithful, be fearlessly intentional, be a radical disciple as you try and authentically follow Jesus Christ. And you know what? You might see amazing things happen before your very eyes, and that's great. And you might not see amazing things happen before your very eyes. And you know what? If you were faithful, that's great too. You might make loads of money as you faithfully follow Christ in this world. Great. You might be as poor as a dog as you live faithfully for Christ in this world. Great. You might be really popular with your peers as you live faithfully for Christ in this world, and you might be the subject of everyone's hate. Great. God is the one who's in charge of results. I don't know what that does to you. For me, that does two things. Here's the first one. It takes off the pressure, doesn't it? It takes the pressure off massively. God's the one who's in control. God's the one who's going to determine whether someone comes from spiritual death to spiritual life. God's the one who decides whether my humble efforts of service and giving are going to do something magnificent or not. But that's not up to me. God just wants me to be faithful. And if I'm faithful, God's going to look at me one day when I pass from this short period of existence into my eternity and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Takes the pressure off, doesn't it? Do you live faithfully in front of your classmate who doesn't know Christ? The result's not up to you. God just asks you to be faithful. Takes the pressure off. What's the second thing it does? It greatly drives me to my knees to remember to pray. Because if we want anything to happen, it's of God. It's not of us. We're simply the vehicles, the instruments that God delights to use. But any movement, anything worth of note is all his work. And so we need to be people on our knees praying by God's spirit that he would work and move and transform your classroom, your city, your place, your family, because only he can do it. How should we live in light of life's brevity? We need to be fearlessly intentional, working hard and taking risks for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that might involve some of you being radical this week with the gospel as you take the gospel out. Because some of you here, I would imagine, dream about having big houses and fancy cars and lots of money and having a wife and having a husband and having kids one day. And here's the truth. It's about time we put some of that selfishness to death. Stop living like a normal civilian and start living like a Christian. God does not promise you that you're going to make loads of money. God does not promise you that you're going to have kids one day. God does not promise you that you're going to find a husband or wife of your dreams. God does not promise you that you're going to be popular one day. God promises that the gospel will prevail. And so it's about time that we start pleading with Christ and asking Christ to show you, how can I give my life wholeheartedly for the only endeavor in this life which is guaranteed to succeed? The gospel of Jesus Christ. How can I give my life entirely? the gospel of Jesus Christ and not waste it. As I close, I want to remind you of a story that I'm sure many of you have heard. It was one told by John Piper as he stood in front of an arena of college students back in, I think, the year 2000. As he was standing in front of those college students, he recounted a story which he told his church members earlier that week. And he was informing them about the death of two women in his church both, I think, in their 70s, 80s. And they'd spent their whole lives out in the mission field telling other people about Jesus Christ. And in their 70s, both of them, out serving in the mission field, lost their lives. And as Piper stood in front of that church, and as he stood in front of those thousands and thousands of students, he asked them this question. Was that a tragedy? Was that a tragedy? Two women at the end of their lives who have wholeheartedly given that short period of existence 
to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Was that a tragedy? He said, no, it's not a tragedy. And then he said, let me tell you a tragedy. He got out a little magazine article, Reader's Digest from America, and he read about this elderly couple, Bob and Penny. I think he was 56 and she was 54. They made a ton of money in their life. They took early retirement. They bought a home in Florida, a holiday home. They went to Florida, and every single day, they just enjoyed the sun in their holiday home, and they walked up and down the beach, and they started collecting shells. And he says, you know what? That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. Bob and Penny, in the final period of their life, before they meet their maker, in the final period of that little red part of two to three inches of red tape, before they enter the eternity where they will stand before their creator and give an account for the one opportunity they had to make a gospel difference in this life. And how do they spend the last chunk of their existence? Collecting shells. Here they are, God, he says. Here's my shell collection. Do you think God will be impressed? Let me ask you, are you collecting shells? You're probably not literally collecting shells, you're weird. But are you collecting shells? What are you living for? What investments are you investing in in this life? God does not care about the money in your bank account. God does not care about how many followers you have. God does not care about how popular you are in your class. There is only one thing in this life which matters, and it's your allegiance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I urge you, life is brief. Do not waste it. Start now. In light of life's brevity, be fearlessly intentional for Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us as we close. I'll hand over to the band. God, we thank you for the message of Ecclesiastes, which echoes so poignantly into our own hearts, Lord, as we think about our lives, as we think about the gods which we, if we're honest, quite commonly pursue and worship. Father, we pray that you would use these words of King Solomon to expose some of those things. And Father, we pray that your spirit would help us to repent of some of those things, to give our ultimate allegiance to you, the glory of your name, the allegiance of your son and his gospel, that we may one day stand before you as we give an account for our lives. Lord, in spite of all the secondary things, the things which are of minimal importance, Father, we pray that you would help us to be able to stand and say that we were fearlessly intentional and our gospel obedience to living in the short period of existence that we have on this earth, to follow you, to live for you, and to ultimately represent you in this world. Father, be with us now, we pray. Help us to go and pray that your spirit would continue to move and speak in our hearts. In Jesus' great name we pray. Everyone said.